Good evening, church. Thank you for gathering with us to worship tonight. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them to the book of John, chapter 3. We'll be looking over a passage I imagine that we're all very familiar with. We'll be reading verses 16 through 21. John 16 through 21. Starting in chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, church, many of you know that I'm a Marine, I'm a pilot, and one of the first things that we are trained to do as pilots is to learn our procedures. And there's a litany of types of procedures that we have to learn, but the most important of those procedures are what we call boldface. We call them immediate action items. And the reason for that is, is because when you're flying and something happens, if there's an emergency or a malfunction, there's not time to break out a checklist. There's not time to look at your manual and figure out what you need to do. So you have to have that procedure, that immediate action item memorized, and you have to know it cold so that in that moment, you don't need to look up the answer. You just already know it. And you can put it into action and hopefully fix whatever's going on with the craft and recover it safely. And there's other procedures after those immediate action items, but we really stress the importance of knowing those. And it's so important that even now, I've been doing this for 12 years, every month I have to fill out We call it an emergency procedures exam. And I have to take a blank sheet of paper and I have to write out every single one of those emergency action items. It's about four pages. I have to write them all verbatim, word for word. And the reason is, again, is because I need to know that stuff. I can't look up a book in a time of crisis. And when I study those immediate action items, I think about often, what is the level of my spiritual boldface? What kind of scriptural immediate action items do I have committed to memory? Now, we all have scripture committed to memory, and I would be willing to bet that everybody here tonight is very familiar with this passage and probably has at the very minimum John 3.16 memorized. I would be willing to bet that if we walked out through downtown and took a straw poll, most of the people, the vast majority of them, would know John 3.16. But there's a difference, right, between having something memorized and actually understanding it and actually knowing how to apply it. And while I think that everybody here tonight, I, would be, I feel very confident that we all understand this passage and we even understand how to apply it in our lives. I still think that it's good as Christians to come to passages in Scripture that we're familiar with and almost have a review, have a spiritual refresher in the meaning and the applicability of that text in our lives. Because remember, as Christians, Paul tells us that not only are we called to walk, but we are called to be engaged in spiritual warfare. And when we look at the example of Christ, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Every single time Satan presented him with a temptation, how did he respond? He said, it is written. 
It is written. It is written. And even Paul, when he tells us to put on the spiritual armor of God, the one weapon that we're called to draw from the armory, as it were, is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. And so here we have this passage that we're familiar with, that we all know, but again, I think it's really important to just when we come to these moments of Scripture that we know that we have committed to memory, to not speed through them, but to meditate on them and really di- dig deep and, figure, and remind ourselves and review how these passages apply to our lives and why they matter. And so this passage, just again, this is a review, but what's the main argument of this passage, as we know, is that Christ is the only way to salvation, that faith in Christ, belief in Jesus Christ is the only Son of God who died for our sins, is the only way to be saved. And that stands in stark contrast to what the world will tell us. The world will tell us that there are many ways to achieve salvation, or there are many ways to be saved, but we know that this passage tells us many times over that Christ is the only way. He's the only way. And so in this passage, we get a fantastic presentation of the gospel, and, and it comes on the heels it's right, it's buried, not buried, but it's within another larger discussion that Christ is having with Nicodemus, another character of the Bible that we're very familiar with. And, and who was Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was a member of the, the Pharisees that were one of the religious leaders, the religious leading groups of Jerusalem. And the way I think about it, it might not be the best analogy, but we have the Republicans and the Democrats. Well, the Jews had the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes. And, and it's not the, the, a one-to-one comparison, but he was a group within a group and a leader within a group that believed that the Jews were to be separate, that the Jews were to be distinct. They were many, a lot of them were businessmen. They were not necessarily priests, but they actually represented the majority of Jewish orthodoxy at the time in terms of numbers. There were about 6,000 of them from what we think in the first century. But they had a problem. Paul discusses this. And they started out as a good thing, as it often does, but they, see, what the Pharisees thought is they said, okay, we have the written law. Moses gave us the written law, but we need a way to apply it. We need a way to protect it. And so when you have something like in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, where Moses says, keep the Sabbath and keep it holy, the Pharisees would try to figure out, okay, well, that is well and good, but how do we actually make sure that we're implementing that law, that scripture, that rule in the best way possible? So what they did was they created a bunch of extra rules, a bunch of traditions to build a fence, is what they called it, around the law in order to protect it. So they had things like for the Sabbath, for instance, you could only walk so many steps. You could only lift so much weight. You could only do so much work, eat this kind of food. And all these extra restrictions as a means to protect the implementation of the law. And that's good in theory, but what happened was in practice, the Pharisees started to see the following of this oral law and this tradition as a means to holiness, as a means to be saved. And so Nicodemus, we don't know much about him, but we know that he was a leader of the Pharisees. And in many ways, you know, this might be because we just watched a movie about Martin Luther last week. When I see Nicodemus, I see a man who probably was a lot like Martin Luther, who was an expert in the law, who followed the law, probably to a T. In his discussions with Jesus, we have reason to believe that not only was he a teacher, but perhaps he was the preeminent teacher, certainly one of the senior teachers in Jerusalem at the time. But yet, he still had questions. He still had a hole. He still had doubts, which is what led him likely to Jesus in the first place. Because remember, Jesus is approached by Nicodemus at night in secret. And he probably had some questions on his mind that he wanted to present. 
But Jesus doesn't give him an opportunity, does he? No, Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue. Jesus cuts right to what's on Nicodemus' mind and his heart, and he tells him how to be saved. He says, you must be born again. And then he continues to expand on that when he gives the message of the gospel here in verse 16. And so the point here is that Jesus is telling Nicodemus and telling us that the way to be saved is not by doing tradition or doing good deeds or doing anything other than expressing faith in Jesus Christ as the only Son of God who died for our sins and believing in Him as our one and only Savior. That is the only way to be saved. That is the only way to be spiritually transformed. And again, that stands in stark contrast to what the world tells us today, but it's true, and it's repeated over and over again in this passage that we all know so well. So there's a lot here that we could go through, but what I want us to pull away are three points tonight. That's the, the first point is the purpose of Christ, that he's the only way to salvation. The second is the punishment we escape through belief in Christ. And the third is that the world prefers sin, the preference of sin for the one who rejects Christ. So what's the first point? The purpose of Christ. In John 3.16, again, that the spiritual boldface that we have committed to memory, right? So what does it say? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now the first word that should jump out at you is that it says that God so loved the world. God didn't just love the world, period. God didn't just love the world enough. God so loved the world. That demonstrates the magnitude of his love for us. And furthermore, remember the world is a world in rebellion, a world of sin, a world that God created perfectly for humanity, and then humanity instead chose sin and continued to live in that way up until this point, even until now. And furthermore, there's nothing within the context of this passage to lead us to believe that the world in mind is, is restricted to the world of the elect. God's love it has, is expands to the whole world. Obviously, only some are going to be saved, but God so loves the world, a world that is so bad and so sinful, yet God has love for the entire world. And that's big, especially to a man like Nicodemus, who believed that the Jews were separate and distinct and were the only, going to be the only recipients of God's love and God's grace. So secondly, that love was so great, so magnificent, that he gave us his only son. So not, not only does God love a rebellious world, a world of so much sin, but he loves that world so much that he gave not just a son, his only son, his perfect, magnificent, sinless son. So again, God loved us so much, not just enough, not adequately, but so much that he gave his best, Jesus Christ. And then we get to the third point that, of, this, of this verse, that whoever believes in him will not perish. And again, not, this is not physical life, this is eternal life, but this word belief, this is what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, right? I mean, we have God's sovereign will, but we have human will. Two forces run parallel, but we can't get around them. And so we know through Scripture and what we've been talking about going through Romans that it is God through His grace that enables us to believe in the first place. We know that. We know that if God didn't act through His grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would remain in a state of sinful condemnation. But nevertheless, we can't escape the fact that we are still called to believe. We are still called to be accountable. We have will, a free will. And so you might say, well, does this contradict what you're saying here, Nate, is, is God being contradictory because he sent Jesus into the world to, to save some and not save others? Well, no, because the world is completely sinful. The world is completely condemned. So if God didn't act in the first place, every single one of us would remain in a state of condemnation. So thank God for his grace and his love that he sent his son so that there would be a way for us to save, to be saved. 
I mean, that's what, we, what Paul talks about in Romans 7, right? When he says, like, I can't do it, I can't do it. Thank God for the grace and love and the Lord Jesus Christ, who's our Savior, because we can't do it on our own. And so again, God loves a sinful world so much that he sent his Son. And for us so that we can have eternal life. And again, this isn't a physical life, this is the eternal spiritual life. And so when you break this down fundamentally, what this means is that there are only two options. The world will tell us there are many paths, there are many options, but there's only two. There's eternal perishing, which comes from exclusion, which is the exclusion of God's fellowship, which is results from rejecting Christ and not believing in him as your Savior, or eternal life, which is the result of fellowship from God in heaven and accepting Christ, expressing faith in Jesus as your Savior. And so again, by our nature, we are sinful. We would be perishing. We would be in a state of condemnation. And if it wasn't for Christ in the first place, we would never have a chance. And that brings us to the second here in this passage, is that the punishment we escape through belief in Christ. So again, in verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what do we get in verse 16 and here in 17? We get the first, the purpose of Christ, that he came to save. Now we get what he did not come to do. It says right here, he did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. So you might ask, well, could God have just condemned and judged? Well, absolutely. We, were, we are all guilty and deserving of judgment. So then, what was the purpose? Well, we just went over it. Jesus came to save. But then you might say, well, hold on, Nate. I've read this book, and I know that later on, and it says that Jesus will judge. Jesus will be the judge. In John 5, 22, the, it, Jesus says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And there's other passages in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 27, chapter 9, verse 39. So you say, well, how do we reconcile this? Well, remember, Jesus has more than one ability, more than one role. So he, yes, he, he will be God's judge, judger. He will come and bring judgment. But his main purpose is to save. And furthermore, Christ's main purpose in the incarnation was to save. Christ will come again, and there will be a judgment. But the main purpose of Christ's incarnation is to save. And remember, we're, we're all sinners. We don't start out neutral. The world will tell you that we start out neutral in the middle and that you either kind of push one way or the other. Or you might, the world might tell you that we start out good and the world may, through society might push us to, to evil, evil behavior or good behavior. But we know through Scripture that all have turned away. No one does good, not even one. We are all sinners. And you know, I think one example that kind of illustrates just the fact that we are sinners by nature is... Uh, little children. I mean, one of the things that little children learn to do first, I would argue, from my own experience, is to be disobedient. Um, <laughs> one of my earliest memories uh, is being about three years old, and I learned a word that I shouldn't have learned, uh, that shouldn't have been said, and I was going through the house, and I walked up to my mother in the hallway, getting my little baby sister ready, and she looked at me, and she could tell that I was about to say something that I wasn't supposed to say. And so she looked right at me, and she said, Nathaniel, don't you say it. So now I knew what I wasn't supposed to say, and I was given a command to not say it. What do you think I did? I, I said it, and then I turned around and ran away as fast as I could, right? Because I knew I wasn't supposed to do it, right? But inherently, that's kind of just like our instinct as humans. We're sinners by nature. And if you don't believe me, keep reading here in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
So what's, what's important about that is the word already. Because again, it says is condemned already. Why? Because apart from God, we are condemned in our sin. From birth, by our very nature. If it wasn't for Christ coming in the first place, we would remain in that state. We are sinners naturally. Only Christ can save it. Only Christ can save us. So what does that mean then? What does this verse tell us? That means that while demonstrating faith in Christ and believing him as our Savior is what leads to eternal life, it also means that failure to exercise faith is what leads to spiritual death. So you say, what's the difference between belief and unbelief? Well, it's right there. Belief leads to eternal life through faith in God, given to us by his grace. Unbelief results in remaining in a state of condemnation because that's where we already are if it wasn't for Christ. Now, it's important to note, again, I can't stress this enough, the, the ability to even believe in God in the first place comes from the grace of God. Apart from him, we would not even be able to demonstrate faith to even have the ability to believe in the first place. The Bible's clear on this. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, in John 15, 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Paul tells us in Ephesians multiple times, Ephesians 1, uh, I'm sorry, verses 2, 8 through 9, For you are saved by grace, not by works, that no man may boast. So again, this means we don't start out in the middle, being able to choose our own adventure. If God didn't act in the first place through his grace, we would remain in sin. But nevertheless, while he enables us to believe, we still have to believe. We can't escape our responsibility. This is why it says if we don't believe, we're condemned already, because apart from Christ, that's where we are. And you might say, well, why does the world reject Christ then? When you present it like that, the option's easy. Eternal life, eternal punishment, yeah, I want life, right? Well, it's because our last point, the preference of sin. The sinner prefers sin. The world prefers sin. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So what is the light that is in the world? That's Jesus. So if you go back to chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we see the light is Jesus coming into the world. So you say, if the light, if Jesus, the truth, has come into the world, why do people reject him? Well, it says right here, because their works were evil. And they like it that way. I mean, sinners like to sin. Romans 1, starting in verse 21, tells us this. And this is the tragic thing, is that, you know, this, this, this verse I'm about to read applies not immediately to the Jews, but the, it, the, the, one of the most tragic things is that the Jews had the prophets, they had the promises, they had the scripture, they had the, everything pointing to them that Christ was coming, and they still rejected him. And that's just, and it's, it's so foolish when you think about it, but that's just the tragedy of sin. And this is what Paul says in Romans 1, starting in, in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That is why people reject Christ and they embrace sin and evil is because they want to. Because they like it. Because apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what we want to do. And people who are unbelievers or skeptics, they, they won't ever ex express it in those terms. But make no mistake, church, that is exactly the truth. Why does the sinner love darkness? Because the dark hides this, your sin. I mean, think about it. Darkness is the absence of light. Light exposes the truth. 
You can hide in the darkness. You can hide your sin. And that's what has been going on in the world since the moment this was written, before that, and even now. Is that if you can hide your sin in the darkness, eventually you can begin to justify it. You can sort of explain it away. Before you know it, that sin is no longer needs justification. It's acceptable. And then it can be celebrated. I mean, look at what's going on in our society today. All the things that the Bible tells us are clearly sins, but yet within our modern Western society, we're told we should celebrate. I'm going to just, a, a couple of things here, a couple of lists. So the first one, adultery. Hebrews 13.4, Exodus 20.14 are just a couple of places that tell us adultery is a sin. But yet, many people in our society, many books and media and movies will tell you that adultery is something that is not only normal, but hey, it should be celebrated if that's what you want. I mean, there was a show on television a while ago called Mistresses. It was all about people having affairs. That was the whole point of the show. What else? Homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22, Romans 1.26-27. Clearly tells us homosexuality is a sin. But American society, Western society, will tell you that homosexuality should be celebrated. That we should accept people as they want to be. What else? Atheism. Revelation 21.8 says that the faithless will burn in the soul from the fire. Vengeance, Romans 12.19, Leviticus 19.18. Lies, Leviticus 19.11, Colossians 3.9-10. All of these things the Bible clearly tells us are sins, but yet, if you look at the top 10 movies in terms of gross and money today, you'll find movies that celebrate criminals, movies that celebrate drunkards, movies that celebrate atheists, movies that celebrate thieves, movies that celebrate adulterers. That's the plot of the movie. The, her the hero are people who engage in these acts. That's what our society does. Why? Because the world loves sin. And more than that, in verse 20, we see that for everyone who does wicked things, they hate the light and do not come to the light. Why? Lest his work should be exposed. And that's what it really boils down to. Why do they hate the light? Because it exposes them. I mean, really, this is what it manifests itself as. When you talk to an, I, I believe this, when you talk to a non-believer, a, a lot of times they're going to give you a lot of excuses about why they don't want to be in the church. They'll say, well, you know, Nate, there's just so many hypocrites in the church, and there are. Or they'll say, Nate, there's so many theological issues, there's just, there's just contradictory things, I just can't get over that. And, and though that's true. I say, you know what, why does God allow suffering? I can't, get, I can't get my head wrapped around why is there evil in the world. And that's a tough one. But really... What it boils down to is those are excuses because people do not want to admit their need for a savior. They don't want to admit their status as a sinner. That's why they reject Christ. They don't want to accept the truth. They would rather have their truth. You ever hear the world say that? Say, like, it's my truth. They'll say that if you want to follow Jesus, that's good for you, but my truth is I follow Buddha or I'm a Scientologist. People will say that all the time. And that just is utterly ridiculous because you can't have two truths. Truths, by definition, needs to be absolute. The Bible's clear. There is one way, one truth, but the world will tell us not. Why? Because they want to hide in the darkness. They don't want their foolishness to be exposed. But what's amazing, in light of all that, is that in a world like this, that is so sinful, that God still loved us so much that he gave his son to be the only way for us to be saved. And that brings us to the last verse in verse 21. That whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So then you might ask, okay, if, what's the difference then? 
between those who come to the light and those who don't? Well, first, obviously, the grace of God. But in practice, it's a simple fact of acknowledging that we're guilty. The sinner doesn't acknowledge that they're guilty, but we know we're guilty. So we don't try to hide our sin. We, ex- we confess it. We come to the Lord and we repent and we say, Lord, forgive me. I accept your forgiveness through Christ. Please change me, transform me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And then when the Lord works through us, through his good deeds, we don't take credit for that as I'm being so awesome. We say, Lord, thank you for working through my life. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things, what? Through Christ who strengthens me. In chapter 2 of the same book, Paul says, work out your fear and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is Christ who works through you, both to will and to do good works. And so, if you, again, if you can sum it up, what's the, the difference between the believer and the non-believer? We're, we're both guilty. We just admit it. And so, really, as we close tonight, what I would say is, when presented with the gospel, we have a choice. Reject Jesus for whatever reason, whatever excuse, to prevent the sin from being exposed lest you be shown as a sinner and come to the light so you can therefore remain in death. Or two, admit you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. Come to the light and allow Christ to save you. Demonstrate faith in Christ is the only way to save. And when it's phrased like that, the choice is easy. Why would you want anything other than eternal life? And someone once told me that if you have 30 minutes to share the gospel, you should spend 25 minutes explaining the person's need for a Savior and then five minutes presenting the message of Christ. There's a lot of different ways to evangelize, but when reading this passage, I think that really stands true because so many people that I know, and you would probably feel the same way, you tell them about Christ and it sounds good, but if they don't understand their need for a Savior, it doesn't resonate. Because if someone doesn't know they need to be saved, they're not going to want to turn to the Savior. And this when I think about this, it reminds me of training I had to go through when I was a young lieutenant. We had to go through swim training. We put on all of our gear and we'd get in the pool and we would learn how to do all kinds of different things. We'd have to swim with, with our rifles and we'd have to do tasks underwater. And one of the things we had to do was we had to learn how to do rescue swimming. And the final test was you'd be in the middle of the pool with all your gear on and you'd turn away from the edge of the pool and the instructor would jump in the pool and tackle you from behind and try to wrestle you underwater and you had to subdue him or her and bring them back to the side of the pool. And I remember asking, this seems a little weird. Like, if I'm trying to save someone, why are you teaching me basically how to fight them and, and subdue them? And the instructor said, well, when someone is drowning, they're going to panic. And they're not necessarily going to know that you're trying to save them. Or they might be overcome by their fear to even realize that you're trying to save them. And so you have to effectively wrestle with them to save them. Because if you don't, not only will you drown, but they'll probably drown too. And when I think about that, it it reminds me of how we are all drowning. And God is trying to save us. And so are we going to fight him? Are we going to submit to him and believe and demonstrate faith? And again, I keep coming back to this. Thank God for the grace of God enabling us to believe in the first place. That is what enables faith and enables belief. But we cannot get away from our responsibility to demonstrate belief. Because belief, demonstrating faith in Christ is what leads to eternal life. And rejection and failure to demonstrate belief is what leads to eternal death. So again, church, remember, we're not, we're not neutral. We're sinners. But thanks to God for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we can be saved through him. So really, when you think about that, the incarnation 
It is a great act of love, the greatest act of love, but it's also the greatest act of grace, that Christ made a way for us to be saved, the only way. So church, with that, again, thank you for coming tonight. Thank you, Pastor Scott, for giving me another opportunity to preach. So if you would, please join me as we pray, and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we just are so thankful, Lord, that you are a loving God, you are a gracious God, and despite our sin, despite our unworthiness, you loved us so much that you sent your Son, your perfect Son, to save us and make a way for us to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be made righteous in your eyes, and have eternal fellowship with you. So, Lord, help us not only hold on to that truth, but also help us to share it with those around us. We might be able to not only commit them to memory, but commit it to our lives so that we can use your word in every aspect of our life, both in our interactions with others, in and outside the church. We thank you again for all you've done and continue to do. In your name we pray. Amen.